Welcome to the Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller from WMHT.org. David Allen Miller conducts the Albany Symphony, and he provides commentary on the WMHT Live broadcast. David's commentary is full of fascinating stories about the music, the performances, and more. In order to keep the program mostly music, some of what he provides ends up on the cutting room floor. This podcast contains no music, but it does contain all of David Allen Miller's commentary from the concert broadcast on WMHT Live from WMHT-FM, your classical companion. The Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony concert broadcast is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. Our concert began with a beautiful early work by the great English composer Sir Edward Elgar. It's the Elgar Serenade for Strings, one of his most beloved pieces. But what people may not know is that this comes from a very early part of his career, before he had really become at all recognized outside of a very small circle of people. 1892, uh, his big breakthrough piece was the famous Enigma Variations from 1899. So he was still working in some obscurity. But this is a a gorgeous, gentle little three-movement piece, lively in an English way, very gentle, lively first movement, and a a lively finale that uh, actually brings back much of the material of the first movement with one of the most beautiful, uh, evocative, and gorgeous uh, middle movements. And I wanted to program this piece really because uh, the the jumping off point of this concert was the idea of bringing this amazing uh, tuba performer, Carol Yanch, the solo tubist of the Philadelphia Orchestra, to play a beautiful new concerto by Michael Doherty. And since we were having one of the world's greatest tuba players coming, I thought, why not have her do two concerti? The, the Doherty's only about 20 minutes in length. So why not have her do the grandfather or grandmother of all tuba concertos, the Von Williams tuba concerto, which is only about 13 or 14 minutes. And then I thought, well, what intersects with those two pieces? And I love the idea of, since Von Williams was one of the great figures of English music, why not feature his compadre and, and friend, Sir Edward Elgar? So our concert begins with this beautiful three-movement serenade for strings by Sir Edward Elgar. The orchestra is the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. Those were the strings of the Albany Symphony performing Edward Elgar's Serenade for Strings. And now to the central focus of our concert. This was actually the the inspiration for planning the entire concert because uh, this year we have a a resident composer, what we call our mentor composer, thanks to a very generous grant from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. We have a number of composer residencies that run uh, year-long each season. And uh, as part of that uh, grant, we're allowed to appoint a mentor composer. So this year's uh, mentor composer is Michael Doherty, uh, an old, old friend of mine who's just a few years older than I am. I think he's about 60 or 61 years old, and uh, he has become one of the most performed uh, and most embraced of all living American composers, not only because his music is quite excellent and wonderful, which it is, but also because he's really um, sort of has a wonderful way of capturing uh, American popular culture and turning it into symphonic music. So he's had uh, a very famous uh, symphony, the Metropolis Symphony, all about Superman and various other pieces about about very cult- various cultural uh, figures in, in American culture. He's got a series of pieces about Elvis. And uh, he's a very clever, very creative composer and uh, has come up with a lot of really nifty pieces that are played a great deal by orchestras. So I had uh, very much wanted to bring him, and uh, we are actually this season playing two 
concerti of his. This work on tonight's program and also a, a beautiful flute concerto, Trail of Tears, uh, in May as part of our American Music Festival. And then next season, in the middle of the season, in February or perhaps March, the great uh, percussionist Dame Evelyn Glennie is returning uh, to the Albany Symphony and is performing his new percussion concerto, Dream Machine. Uh, and those three works, those three concerti, the one t- tonight and uh, the flute concerto and the uh, percussion concerto, will make up a new disc of Michael's works on the Noxos label. So it's a very exciting weekend for us to perform this tuba concerto because it's, we're actually live recording it as the concert uh, takes place. Uh, so this work is called Reflections on the Mississippi. And Michael wrote it for the Temple University Orchestra about three years ago, two, two and a half years ago, uh, on a commission to commemorate, I don't remember what exactly the anniversary was. But when he looked down the faculty, they very much wanted a, a work for soloist and orchestra and suggested some different people. When he looked down the list of faculty at Temple University in, in Philadelphia, he noticed that Carol Yanch was the tuba professor, is, is and was the tuba professor. And he had known Carol when she was an undergraduate at the University of Michigan, which is the school at which Michael is a distinguished professor of composition. So he was very excited to write a piece for Carol. And uh, then he sort of had to ponder for a little while, you know, what what could he? How could he cast uh, a, a work for tuba and orchestra and make it really resonate with the public? And his thoughts went back to his childhood. Uh, he grew up in Iowa, and his family took many, many trips along and on and around the Mississippi River. And so he decided to write a piece inspired by the mighty Mississippi. I should mention also about Carol Yonch because she's such a singular artist, and I was so tickled to be able to feature her. Uh, First of all, most people don't know what an unbelievably expressive and beautiful instrument, solo instrument, the tuba can be. We hear it usually at the bottom of the orchestra or playing along with the brass in big Wagnerian moments or in polka bands and other kinds of ensembles where it just does boom, 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 boom. But in fact, the tuba, especially in its higher register, is an incredibly beautiful and expressive instrument. And uh, so Carol uh, has an amazing story in that she was an undergraduate uh, at the University of Michigan, finishing her last year as an undergraduate, barely 20. I don't know if she was even 20 yet, when the Philadelphia Orchestra tuba position came open. And as you can imagine, virtually every tuba player in the world applied for this. Many, many very expert tubists who had been playing in major orchestras around the world, 198 tuba players applied for the job, and they invited 60. So when we asked Carol what her, how her uh, relationship with the Philadelphia Orchestra started, she very... Uh, with a, with a wonderful laugh, she said, well, it started by receiving a rejection letter, she said, because she had applied. And, of course, she had no real experience. She'd been playing mainly in bands at uh, the University of Michigan. She, she had a lot of orchestral training but had not really had much experience in orchestras as a tuba player. And uh, she was summarily uh, rejected because she had no experience. Well, they invited 60 tuba players, probably great tuba players, and accepted no one. And then they had a second round inviting uh, certain impressive tuba players they knew. And she was once again rejected in that round. And finally, and they didn't accept anybody in the second round. And then some months later, they decided to have a third round. And one of the trombonists, I guess, saw her video that she had sent and said, boy, this young lady is really impressive. We ought to hear her. She came for the third round. And at the age of 20, not having completed, not having yet completed her undergraduate degree and having virtually no orchestral experience, she was awarded the position as principal tuba player of the Philadelphia Orchestra, one of the the most coveted positions in the entire world of of certainly tuba playing and orchestral music generally. And her first experience was she went back to Michigan, finished her degree, graduated, and then showed up at Saratoga for her first season where she began her tenure as principal tuba. And she's had a wonderful uh, career since. She's 29 years old and she's about to celebrate her th- her 10th anniversary at SPAC. Uh, so we were excited to welcome her back to our neighborhood. 
Anyway, when Michael was casting about for this concerto, and he saw her name, and he'd known her as an undergraduate, he decided, why not write a tuba concerto? And so, in fact, he did, and he, he thought to the back to his childhood on the Mississippi and thought that there was all this sort of soulful music that he wanted to create that would wonderfully feature the tuba as a solo instrument. And so he wrote this four-movement, 20-minute-long concerto, which I must say is an incredibly effective and beautiful piece. I hope you'll find it the same in, in listening to it. Uh, four movements. The first movement is kind of a, a mystical, mysterious movement with a beautiful tuba solo emerging from the depths. It's called Mist. It's kind of about early morning on the river uh, before the sun has really fully appeared. The second movement, which uh, there's a cadenza that leads right into it, is called Fury. The music suddenly becomes very fast and very exciting. It's about you know the incredible, tumultuous aspects of the river and storms and during the great flood of 1927 and various events like that. The third movement, Prayer, I seem to recall having read that it's a prayer actually in, in memory of his father who passed away a few years ago, uh, but it's this idea of sort of reflective and, and, and beautiful uh, introspective movement. And the last movement, the fourth movement, is called Steamboat. It's sort of an evocation not only of steamboats, but of uh, the wonderful culture of New Orleans. Uh, They're near the river, and uh, he kept talking about when he was with us, the second line of these these wonderful parades that occur, uh, and tubas and trombones and trumpets uh, wailing away. Uh, and so it's got this wonderful, jazzy New Orleans feel to it. So four movements, a very exciting and beautiful addition to the not at all large tuba repertoire. Here it is, Carol Yanch solo tuba with the Albany Symphony, connected by me, David Allen Miller, in Michael Doherty's tuba concerto, Reflections on the Mississippi. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. Since we had one of the greatest tuba players in the world with us, and since she's a very tall, strong, powerful young lady uh, who really knows how to use her breath control to maximum uh, capability, I thought, why not feature another tuba concerto as well. So to begin the second half of our program, we featured the most famous of all tuba concertos, arguably the only one that has really entered the standard repertoire, although there's also a a quite lovely one by John Williams, and I'm sure there are many others as well, uh, of lesser note. But this is a Rayfon Williams tuba concerto. It's from 1955-54. It came about we're not exactly sure why it came about. All I know is that uh, when the London Symphony was having a Jubilee concert in 1955, they contacted the great Von Williams, who was already, I believe, 81 or 82 years old, and asked him whether he had a piece that had perhaps not been performed that they could feature on their Jubilee concert. And he said, oh, yes, I do have a piece. I have a tuba concerto, which is quite intriguing that at the age of 80-something or 79 or something up there in that uh, uh, rather um, autumnal age, that he had decided to just sit down and write a tuba concerto. So they called up the principal tuba player of the London Symphony, who had never played a solo with orchestra, and they asked him if he'd be willing to do it. And he went went with Mr. Von Williams, and Mr. Von Williams coached him on the piece. And it's a beautiful, rollicking, very typical kind of Von Williams piece, very pastoral and kind of charming and, and introspective in a way. Uh, three movements, uh, wonderful cadenzas at the end of the first and last movements that really showcase the, the orchestra stops and the tuba really gets to do very virtuosic things. Three movements, kind of jaunty first movement, an incredibly expressive and beautiful middle movement, and then a a very jolly last movement uh, to bring the piece to a, a rousing conclusion. 
Uh, it's such an interesting thing that uh, that the tuba had never really been featured as a solo instrument, and even after the Von Williams, very seldom heard as a solo instrument. Every orchestra has a tuba player, but it's not very often that the tuba player gets to step out from his or her orchestral role. So that's what made this concert so exciting. And I was I was quite struck when Carol told us that um, she actually is playing the Doherty tuba concerto with her home orchestra, with the Philadelphia Orchestra, later this spring, but that it will be the very first time in the orchestra's entire hundred plus year old history that they have ever had a tuba concerto on their schedule. So I was proud to be able to not f- to feature not one but actually two tuba concertos on the Albany Symphony season since we always like to do wild and creative things like that. And I must say that the feedback of the audience both both performances was just so positive because uh, most people just had no idea of of how extraordinarily uh, dynamic a solo instrument the tuba can be. So here now Rayfon Williams a tuba concerto from 1955. Uh, the solo tuba player is Carol Yanch with the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. The Conductor's Notes podcast, featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony concert broadcast, is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. That was Rayfon Williams' Tuba Concerto, uh, featuring soloist Carol Yanch with the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. The last work on our program is a, a piece that uh, I just love to play at any time. It happens not to feature the tuba, which may have been part of the reason why we scheduled it, since we figured everybody will have had a lot of tuba by that point in the program. But it does feature trombones, which is a little bit unusual for the composer Johannes Brahms. I think I was thinking, since we had the two very unusual tuba concertos and this lovely Elgar piece at the beginning, which connected to the Vaughan Williams, because they're both English from a sort of similar period, uh, and Elgar being so immersed and and his sound world owing so much to the two towering figures of 19th century music, of Wagner and Brahms, that it would be lovely to close the program, sort of to bookend it with these wonderful Brahmsian statements. So this is Brahms' third symphony. In certain ways, I think his most, dare I say, relaxed symphony. It's true that after the incredible difficulty of somehow generating his first symphony, which we're told took like 14 years of work. You know, he really was felt like he was, he had the weight of Beethoven upon his shoulders and he had to do something worthy of the Beethovenian tradition. So the first symphony took him quite a long time to, to create. Uh, the second symphony came out fairly effortlessly uh, and is a much sunnier piece. But the third symphony, which uh, also came out not that long after in, in 1883, uh, when Brahms was, I guess, a 60-year-old man, has the most wonderful sense of space and of of grandeur and in a certain way the sort of relaxed but epic beauty. And um, I'm told that Brahms was very uneasy about it because it was the one piece of his that met with absolutely universal acclaim. Everybody seemed to love this piece. The critics, the audiences, the premiere, and the first performances all over Europe were just widely acclaimed, and that made Brahms terribly nervous because he felt that he probably wasn't doing music that was challenging enough or difficult enough. He didn't want to be loved. He wanted to be appreciated. But it is a very deep work, and I think it's a great uh, tribute to all those audiences and critics that they so quickly uh, understood and appreciated it. The work is like, as in all Brahms symphonies, in four movements, the beautiful thing about it that I find quite wonderful, even more than his previous works. You know, Brahms was so much about trying to connect 
the various aspects of pieces together of of taking motives and then then changing them and altering them and 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 linking different sections of movements and then even different movements of pieces to each other to create this incredible structural unity in the works and yet i would say that this the third symphony is the work in which he tried and i think succeeded the most in creating a real structural unity between the four movements of the piece to the point where there's a way to sort of imagine this piece or think about the structure of it as if not only is it a symphony in four movements, but it's as if the four movements taken together create a a major architectural structure, almost like their own super movement. The way it's laid out is is with this amazing, very dramatic first movement, very tumultuous. And uh, interestingly, uh, Brahms takes as his theme uh, a, a sort of Tossaway theme that that Robert Schumann had stated in his Rhenish Symphony, uh, his Third Symphony, and as you remember, uh, interesting Third Symphony. And now Brahms is writing his Third Symphony. Uh, Schumann was really a spiritual and a literal kind of godfather to Brahms. He adopted him as a 19-year-old musician and really helped foster his career and proclaimed him a genius. And it's that that wonderful moment in the in the Rhenish where the the low strings go bum 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 ba ba bum. Bum, ba, ba. And Brahms takes this, and, and so he turns it into the opening, incredibly declamatory theme, ba-dum, bum, ba, ba, dum. and it becomes this amazing structure. So he's actually taken kind of a, a, a casual ending from Schumann and turns it into an epic beginning. And uh, then the last movement also is very epic and dramatic and powerful and big structured. But in between are these two beautiful, very delicate movements, uh, a slow, gorgeous second movement very that begins very simply and turns into a very strong structure. And one of the most celebrated of all Brahms' third movements, uh, usually there's a scherzo or a minuet in that third movement, a kind of dance movement. Brahms loved to write uh, piano intermezzi, intermezzos, uh, sort of these beautifully meditative pieces. And, and to me, this sounds like a piano intermezzo. And even the, the string figuration under the woodwind solos and the, the French horn solos feels like pianistic accompaniment. It's the kind of thing you would do with the left hand of your piano in a piano piece. But it's that famous movement. And so on and so forth. That's taken by the, the low strings, the cellos, by the violins, and ultimately by the French horn in the most beautiful way uh, and a fantastic kind of uh, almost like a Mendelssohn song without words. So these these gorgeous, very intimate uh, inner movements are flanked by these much more monumental big movements. And what's most striking about the piece among, well, one of the things that's most striking about the piece is that unlike all of Brahms's other symphonies and unlike most symphonies, it does not end with a great dramatic Peroration. Well, it sort of does, but it, it ends quietly, which is something very daring for Brahms. In essence, the, the material from the first movement, very much veiled and changed, re- returns toward the end of the, of the last movement and brings the piece to this wonderful unified close in this very quiet, kind of uplifting way. At the same time, there's a, a theme in the second movement that's kind of a very static sort of theme that then turns into this kind of uh, first mysterious and then very triumphant brass woodwind fanfare in the last movement. So again, he's he's linking the material from the various movements in a way that other composers had done and would continue to do, but nobody, I think, did quite as organic or quite as uh, wonderfully integrated a fashion as Brahms does. So here now, uh, the beautiful Brahms Symphony Number no. 3. It's performed by the Albany Symphony, conducted by me. David Allen Miller. Thanks for listening to the Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller of the Albany Symphony Orchestra from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org.